We return today to our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, so you can be turning there, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'll be reading today from verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. So if you are able and willing, would you stand with me that we might show respect for this, the Word of God. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should be wrong or or no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now, I just want to check on something that I want to make sure is still true. Here at City Fellowship, we believe in preaching the Bible, right? Okay. That uh, that is what you all want me to do, is preach the Bible. Am I correct? Um, I, I just want to make sure that what you want me to do today is to preach the Bible. I just want to make sure about that because I, I think you're a Bible people, and I just want to make sure. Are you a Bible people? Okay. Because y'all heard all that talk about sexual immorality in there, didn't you? You heard that, that word sex in there, didn't you? I just really want to make sure you want to hear the Bible this morning. Because the Bible is going to require me this morning to use some phrases that you don't always hear in church. Probably to our detriment. So it's a good thing y'all are Bible people, and it's a good thing that the fifth grade and under are upstairs this week. Amen? (laughs) One of the best teachers I ever had was my seventh grade health teacher, who, you know, in those days, I don't know what they do now, but you had a whole section of your class, you know, the whole curriculum for the year would be sex ed. And so um, this gentleman was a quadriplegic. He had no use. He had a very large um, wheelchair that I think actually was run by air. That He had a tube that would go to his mouth and he could run it that way. It's a great teacher. Um, and on the first day of sex ed, he said, um, I know you all are seventh graders and we're going to have to use some words that's going to make you laugh. And so he started hollering those words at the top of his lungs, one after the other, all medical terms. He kept saying, these are medical terms I'm saying to you. And he would 
holler out one of those terms so loud that is, I remember it as like it was yesterday. It's a picture in my mind of his wheelchair just shaking with the, with the volume. And all of us seventh graders are like, whoa, you know, and at the end of it, he said, and you know what, Mr. Wilsey, who was the assistant principal, I only remember his name because of this whole story, is not going to come down and get me, right, because I used medical words. But I do all that now. Because I know you're seventh graders, <laughs> and I know you've got to get some giggles out before you will hear what I have to say to you, because that's not really the point of what I have to say to you, you know, these, these nervous words. We are prone to missing the point, aren't we? If the subject of sex is involved, we are double, you know, apt to miss the point, aren't we? But really, under any circumstances, we are prone to getting distracted and taking our eyes off of what is most important. We do have trouble identifying what is truly important, what is really the point. I, get some, I got some good advice from a seasoned preacher one time who said that when you are preparing to preach from any passage of Scripture, just remember, the point of your sermon needs to be the point of the passage, so in keeping with that advice, let me be clear that the point of 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8 is found right there in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And we are urging you in this more and more and more and more. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point of what this passage is about. This passage isn't about sex. Everything that it has to say about sex is just an illustration of what is truly the main point of this passage. In fact, I would argue that the main point of this passage is the main, is one of, is, is the main point of life on earth as a human being. Our calling, our challenge is to learn what it means to live in order to please God. Okay? Now, I want to assert to you today that nothing matters. What I'm, going to, what I'm going to assert to you today is that nothing matters more than pleasing God. I believe this is the message of Paul to the uh, Thessalonians. And therefore, it is my message to you and certainly the message that is to my soul this morning. Nothing matters more than walking in the pleasure of God, to feel the smile of God upon you like the rays of the sun upon your face to pursue his pleasure over and over in life more and more. Oh, I believe there is nothing that will please you and I more than living a life that is pleasing unto the Lord. In fact, I would say that every other pleasure, let me say this clearly, every other pleasure that you might experience on this earth pales in comparison to the pleasure of hearing God the Father say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Are you all with me this morning? Oh, to feel the smile of God. I think that's part of what got to me about Danielle's video. I just, maybe it's her little smile. I don't know what. It just felt the smile of God, you know, smiling at me through her. If you've ever felt the smile of God on you, then you know, you know 
It's the longing of the human soul. If you felt the smile of God even once, you want that for those whom you love and whom you don't love. You want that for others. And so you know why Paul would say to those in Thessalonica, now we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus, do this more and more. Seek his pleasure in your life more and more and more. Oh, the human heart was built to pursue pleasure. Isn't that strange? Isn't that not the message that we receive often or that we've um, derived from religion, from the Bible, that God made us, he made our hearts to desire to chase after pleasure. God has placed in us a hunger that must be satisfied. And the more we have of that which satisfied, the more we want of it. And I'm telling you that there is nothing that satisfies that hunger but God himself. To be near him, to be with him, to know and feel his love and his acceptance and, and his approval for him to take pleasure, for him to smile upon you. That's what's most pleasing to the human soul. Why? Because of what they're teaching those little babies upstairs that God made you and he loves you. That is the longing, it's the, it's, the, it's the culmination of our existence. And Paul urges that in Thessalonica, the believers there would arrange or rearrange their lives in whatever way is necessary so they can get more and more of what will really please them. And so they are to live in such a way as to bring pleasure to God, thereby finding what pleases their hearts the most. The King James says it this way. Instead of saying ask and urge, it says beseech and exhort, which I like better because it sounds so much more desperate. And in fact, it says, we beseech you, brethren, we exhort you by the Lord Jesus that you would abound more and more in the pleasure of God. Abound. Go after it. Against this, there is no law. Let your heart be filled to its content in the smile of Almighty God. Oh, how Paul must love the Thessalonians. Because here he beseeches them to run after the greatest pleasure in life and to do so over and over again. And I believe that, I'm going, that if I'm going to be faithful to preach the meaning of this passage today, then I would have to say alongside Paul, there is nothing more important, there is nothing more satisfying than living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. To put it simply, pleasing God must be your priority in life. This is the passage and its intention for you today. Pleasing God must be your priority in life. Does everyone understand that the word priority is a singular word? Y'all know what I'm talking about? We get confused because we make lists of priorities. But by making a list of priorities, we have now robbed the word priority of its meaning. Because there can be only one priority. There can be many important things, but there can only be one priority. So the argument of Paul, when he uses this phrase, live in order to please God, he means order your life in such a way that you please God first, that that is your priority. He's not saying that we don't please, we don't serve other people. 
He's just saying that those are important. And that the way you will serve them and please them needs to be coming out of your pleasing God as a priority. And in fact, if pleasing one of those other people bumps God out of his spot, that's what, it, that's what the Bible calls idolatry, amen? That's not, we need to understand that. We don't love others well. We don't serve others well. We don't please others well unless they are pleased after God, out of God, out of the overflow of our pleasing God. Does everybody with me this morning? So we order our life in such a way that pleasing God is our priority. So let's assume Paul is right. This is what Paul is trying to get across to the Thessalonians. You may not agree with that. It's okay. Just let's say for a minute that Paul is right. If Paul is right, then we have to ask ourselves what this looks like. We are faced with the question today, what kind of life is pleasing to God? What kind of life now? Now, now, now Paul didn't say you got to believe pleasing things. you got to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. All right, we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. What kind of life? is pleasing to God. There's a couple of passages that will help us. One is found in the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews 11.6. If you're taking notes, you can write this passage down. Hebrews 11.6. It may be familiar to some of you. It's very simple. It starts off this way. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what we learn here about faith, about living a life, what do we learn here in that passage, Hebrews eleven six? What do we learn about living a life that pleases God? Very simply put, we learn that what pleases God is faith. Amen. A life of faith that is that is a life that pleases God. If we want to make a priority of pleasing God, all we have to do is live a life of faith. Cool. That's a good solid church answer. That's what y'all need to do. You need to go out and just live a life of faith, have faith, do faith. If something comes up that's bad, you just put some faith on it, paint it in some faith. It's going to get better. God loves that faith. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you're a bit confused by the word faith. Not just today. I'm talking about period. A lot of folks are, a lot of good church folks are confused about what faith is. A lot of long-time Christians are. Okay, listen, y'all know how it is when you pass a point, when it's polite to ask somebody's name that you ought to know by now? You know what I'm talking about? Hey, chief, you know, what, uh, what's up, girl? That's how, that's how church folk are about faith. It be, it's, it's past, you've been a, it, it is not by works, but by faith we are saved. Are you telling me it's too late for you to be saying you don't understand faith now? We say, what's going on, chief, to faith all the time when we read it in Scripture? What's up, girl? I know who you are. I know how you operate. It's too late. For us to say, raise our hand and say, what in the world is faith? 
How, how is that supposed to operate? What's it supposed to look like in my life? And I think a lot of times we get confused because we use it in a way that we talk about our faith. Our, our, and, and especially you see this when people talk about their faith on the news or whatever. It's a set of beliefs, right? It's, it's a set of beliefs. And I'm not saying that belief doesn't have anything to do with faith. If we go on to read in the rest of uh, Hebrews 11:6, it goes on to say that you must believe that he exists in order to have faith. We must have a set of beliefs, but it then goes on past that to say, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So faith is not, it has to go beyond a set of beliefs. You cannot substitute the word belief for faith by itself. It's insufficient. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm saying it's insufficient. And when you do come up on something bad, you just try painting it with that faith. Just some beliefs. So the fact that faith is a the fact is that faith is a concept that will we will grow in understanding all of our life. I don't want to make this too simplistic. It will take us a lifetime to understand what faith is, but it's my desire today to to put some handles on this thing for you. So that you can grab it. You have a place to grab it because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Paul has told us to make a priority of living a life that is pleasing to God. So I think we need some help here. I've got some help from a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr who said this one time. He says, if we really want to understand what faith is, we would be smart to stop using the word faith for about 20 years and just use the word trust instead. And then you can start using faith again. I think that's brilliant. I actually find this very helpful. I've tried it myself. I would encourage you to try this little exercise for a while in your life. Whenever you come across the word faith in your Bible, try replacing it with the word trust and just see how it changes the sentence for you. See what happens. What it's going to do is it's going to make the, the word much less slippery and much more concrete because we understand trust a little more intuitively. Let me give you an example. Turn with me to the book of, of Hebrews. Let's go on to that Hebrews chapter. Hebrews chapter 11. If you keep going to your right from whoop, 1 Thessalonians, yes, it's a right turn, not very far. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. And let's, let's look beginning in verse 17. We're going to talk about Abraham. This is a whole section. It's called the Hall of Faith. By faith, Moses did this. By faith, uh, Jacob did this. By faith, the people did this. 17, it's talking about Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. If you remember the story, Abraham is told to, take, to go to the mountain and take Isaac with him. And on his way up there, God says, Isaac is the sacrifice. They're going up to worship. He says, Isaac is a sacrifice. And the boy is asking, hey, where's the sacrifice? And he says, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. And as they leave the attendants down at the bottom of the mountain, he says to them, 
uh, you stay here with the horses. The boy and I are coming back. Now, he doesn't know what's going to happen up there. He doesn't know if God's going to raise him up from the dead. He doesn't know if he's going to stop his hand. He doesn't know anything like that, but he trusts God. So much so that he knows this is the child of promise. If he's told me to put him down, he's going to raise him up again. Or he's going to stop me or do whatever it is that he's going to do, but I have enough trust in God that I can tell these servants down here, the boy and I will be back in just a moment. So we are told that Abraham offers up Isaac to God by faith. Now, if we replace that word with trust, faith, is some, you know, faith feels like something that spiritual superheroes have that I may or may not. But trust, that's something I exercise every day, right? And I do it in different degrees. I have trust that I can sit in this chair and it's going to hold me up. That's a measure of faith. A greater measure of faith would be if I go to a bank and I put my money, my hard-earned money in the bank. I have, a, I have faith that they're going to hold that money for me. If I want to go even further, a further measure of faith would be get a financial advisor and let them take my hard-earned money and invest it in uh, you know, stocks and bonds or something like that. That's a greater measure of faith. We understand faith in terms of trust. That's something I can get my head around. So there are people that you trust more than others. Agreed? Does everybody, this is a good thing. There are people you trust more than others. If some dude on the street that you don't know gets a hold of your bank account number, is that a problem? Yes. But what about your spouse? What about your mom? What about your best friend? And some of you have had bad stories about that kind of trust, but on the whole, it's supposed to be that that's not a problem if they have your bank account number, right? The difference is trust. You have no problem giving the people you trust access to what's most important to you. Abraham trusted God with the life of his son, his only son, the son of promise. He trusted God with what was most important to him. An act of faith is an act of that kind of trust. It's saying to God, I trust you with this thing that is precious to me. I take this thing that I feel like is mine and I lay it down on the altar. I lay my children down on the altar. I lay my finances down on the altar. I lay my reputation down on the altar. I lay my marriage down on the altar, my job, my ministry, my dreams, my hopes. You bring, as you bring these precious things to God and you lay them down on the altar, truly saying to God as you do so, this is yours. You gave this to me. I see that now. I have been acting as though it is mine. I have been keeping it from you as if you are not trustworthy. Oh, how wrong I have been. I have made a mess of this precious thing, trusting in myself. And so I trust it to you, the one who is trustworthy. Here is my precious thing. I will do whatever you say with it. I will interact with this thing and I will 
do this thing however you say. My trust in you is primary. That's an act of faith. And the more and more precious things that you bring to the altar in this way is the progress you are making in living a life of faith. And a life of faith is pleasing to the Most High God. And Paul is teaching us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that nothing is more important than pleasing the Most High God. So how do you please Him? We trust Him. We trust Him supremely. You trust Him with your most precious things. You bring your most precious things to the altar and you lay them down. Turn with me if you would. Because you're Bible people, I know you want to look at more Bible. Romans chapter 12. This is a very familiar verse to many of you. Verse 1, you may not even need to look there, some of you, because you have it memorized. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as, living, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, we'll have to save that last section because this is also an act of worship. This is how your life becomes a life of worship, is by laying more and more of your precious things down on the altar. That's an act of worship. What, what Abraham is doing up there is an, and not only an act of trust, it's an act of worship. But we're going to have to save that. It's not raining anymore. I was going to say for a rainy day. But we'll save that for a rainy day, or another day. All right. Right now, what I want you to see is this. The ultimate act of faith, the ultimate act of trust is laying what? Yourself on the altar. If you lay yourself and we're going to get to the body part in just a second. You are, that means you are gathering up all your precious things. All your precious things. Everything you love. Everything you are. All you have is laid down on the altar. That. When you put yourself, this is, I'm not even, I, I, y'all, I am trying to do this. I am with you in the process of doing this. But when, if we can figure out how to get all of our precious things on the altar, that's us putting ourselves on the altar. And when that sacrifice is on the altar, the fire will fall. Your life will change. It will be different. Uh, 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 when you say to the Lord, my life is yours, I'm not going to live it my way. I'm not trustworthy with it. You are. I'm going to live it your way. It belongs to you. I trust you with me, with everything I have, everything I am. When that sacrifice is on the altar, the fire will not fail to fall, and your life will change. And then you'll understand the power of the pleasure of God. See, didn't it, when you start that First Thessalonians passage, you say, it's, you know, you need to please God. When you think of pleasing somebody, that doesn't seem like a, you know, big whoop to me. But when I think this all the way through, I understand there is power here that falls from heaven on the sacrifice of your life. 
everything changes. When he is fully trusted with everything, when you belong to him, a holy and pleasing sacrifice. That's powerful. And Abraham's life is an example of what, can one, what God can do with one person who lays themselves down as a living sacrifice. So don't you want to lay your, everything down today? Don't you want to give everything over to him? Don't you want to put your career on the altar? Yes! Don't you want to put your finances on the altar? Yes! Don't you want to put your reputation on the altar? Yes, I do! Don't you want to put your relationships on the altar? Most of them, yes! <laughs> Don't you want to lay your children on the altar? There are times! <laughs> Don't you want to lay your sexuality on the altar? Let's go further than that. More specifically, don't you want to lay sexual intercourse on the altar? What? We're in church. Don't you want to lay sex on the altar? Don't you want to give sex over to God? I feel like I should just be saying this word a bunch of times real loud and telling you Mr. Wilson's not going to come get us. Don't you want to give it over to God and let him decide if you will ever have sex in your whole life again? Or ever? And if so, with who and under what circumstances? Don't you want to do that? <laughs> Are you starting to see the logic of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 a little more now? Why is it that Paul says, order your life in such a way as to please God? And then he goes on to say in verse 3, you know what I'm talking about? Avoid sexual immorality. And that's it. No other examples. No positive examples at all. In fact, it's only a negative example. Something you don't do to please God. Why? Because as I went down the list... You know, whether we know it or not, or whether we believe it or not, y'all, there are things down there deep that we think belong to us. Paul mentions sex here not because he's obsessed, but because he knows that fallen human beings have a bent sexuality and they are therefore sex obsessed. So if, and that's all of us, so if you can lay sex on the altar, if you can allow sex to become a holy thing, set upon the altar as an act of worship to be handled as God sees fit, then you are on your way to a life that is well-pleasing to God. Keep your finger here and let's look at another passage before we close. Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Perhaps we should give this a little bit of, I was going to start in four, maybe we should give it a little bit of context. Because there's people coming to ask Jesus about divorce. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? 
And Jesus said, haven't you read that all at the beginning of at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Lord, I'm starting to sweat <laughs> a little bit. Here Jesus teaches us that sex is about God. God has a purpose for marriage. God has a purpose for sex. And that's to be a physical manifestation of the one flesh union. It is, not, it is to be undertaken by a bride and a groom as an illustration of the union between Christ and his bride, the church. The marriage vow is sacred and therefore not to be broken because the vow of Jesus to his bride will never be broken. Any sex that happens outside of the marriage bed is to be considered sexually, sexual immorality. That's what the Bible uses that term for because Jesus is faithful to his bride and his, faithful, his faithfulness to us is what defines the word moral. So when we lay sex on the altar, we are recognizing that sex belongs to God. We can trust him with it. We have made an unholy mess of it. Would you agree? trusting in ourselves. So we please God when we give it back to him saying, this is yours. I will interact with it as you say. I want to take a moment here and distinguish while we're just speaking frankly between sexual intercourse and our sexuality. We are given a sexual nature so that we will understand intimacy. It's a part of us being breathed in with the spirit of God. We are to understand intimacy. Now let me say this. You don't have to have sexual intercourse to understand intimacy. You don't have to be married to understand intimacy. Jesus himself teaches us that there will be no marriage in heaven because it will have outlived its usefulness as an instructor, as a picture as a nutshell to kind of point one of many to what is most important, intimacy with God, which we will have on that great day with him face to face. Culminated, fulfilled, but it's not our first inkling. It's not our first inkling of intimacy with God. For that, let us... Turn back to our passage today if you've gone far away from 1 Thessalonians, I'm sorry, yes, 1 Thessalonians 4. Come back to it now and look at verse 8. After all this instruction, and, and y'all, there is so much to say right here in this passage. There is so much to say right here in this passage. I want you to look at this just, just real briefly because there's there's... So dear, as someone who brought to me this idea of, of, uh, of sexual stewardship, God has given us a gift and, and we're supposed to steward that gift according to his pleasure. And, and this has to do with God, but also look how it says, don't take advantage of your brother and sister. Don't wrong your brother and sister. This is about the way we treat other people too. 
You can't tell me that God isn't in the Me Too movement. It doesn't mean that everybody in the Me Too movement is godly. He's trying to reach out to us and say, it matters. Sexuality is a, is a holy thing. People aren't here for your benefit. They're not here for your personal desire, you know? They're not be treated like objects and animals. Put it on the altar where it's supposed to be holy unto the Lord. Why? So he says all this instruction. And then in verse 8, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. We reject God. The very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Reject the offer of intimacy with God when we will not place sexuality, our sex on the altar. When we reject that and we say, I don't trust you with that. I trust myself with that. Thank you very much. It's not a rejection of another person. It's a rejection of the offer of intimacy from God in the Holy Spirit. And that is the point of everything. That's the point of Christ on the cross. That's the point of Christ, Christ getting up out of the grave. It's the point of Jesus ascending to the Father so that a helper could come to help us understand the point. I've said the word sex, sex, sex a bunch of times so that we won't miss the point. And that's that we are to be intimate with God. So when you read, and we have help, read the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. That's about husbands and wives, but don't miss the point. There's a lot of sex language in there, so it's easy to miss the point. Jesus is the bridegroom, and your soul is the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. So this is just the one that's hard for us to lay down. And that's why it's the example, right? But it's not the only thing you need to lay down. Oh, I feel like I need some harpists up here today. All right, are there any harpists in the room? Come on up. <laughs> uh, that's for the band. <laughs> you are harpists. Okay. I don't think anybody's a harpist in here. I could be wrong. I'm a harpist. Go get that harp, man. All right. Could we just, for a moment, recognize how important it is for us to have a life of faith and to recognize what a life of faith is, to recognize that it is a life of faith that will please God. And in order to please God, what that means is we need to bring our precious things to the altar and lay them down. That's the point. For some of you, your sexuality or maybe even just the act of sex, whatever it is, it may be the thing that you need to lay down. Or your guilt over what has happened in your past regarding these things. You need to lay that down. 
But for others of you, it's other, th- it's other things. It's other things. What Paul is trying to illustrate is how deep this runs in us. How unwilling we are to lay the most precious things to us down on the altar. So as always, this is an invitation. This is an invitation that stands ready up here for you to come forward and to lay not just your burdens down. Lay your precious things down. Don't just come up. This is always, if you need to lay some guilt and some shame and all those things down, that's, that's the first part of the process. But the rest of it is laying your Isaacs down. It's laying your precious things down. It's laying those things down that mean the most, that feel the most like yours. And recognizing that this too belongs to God who made it. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point. We are to have intimacy with God. We are to be a pleasing thing to God. That's going to require that we lay things down that belong to him, that we're holding back for ourselves. So that's what this time is going to be for. for. We're going to sing a song called, I Surrender All. This is a good old church song, y'all. It's good to sing old church songs and put that, that, that wine in new wineskins sometimes. And to recognize why this is so important. All to Jesus I surrender. Everything I lay down, I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I heard a, a read not too long ago about this pastor that said this. I think this is so important. He said, I, 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 I realized at some point that God had to be first. And if God is first, we all say God is first, right? But if God is first, that means there is no second. Everything else, if God is first, is an act of worship to the first thing. Everything else is laid down on his altar. And if there's anything in my life that cannot be a sacrifice of praise, then that thing shouldn't be in my life. I need to let that thing go. But there are many things that we just don't want to give to God that can be, an, can be a, 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 a sacrifice of praise even today. So do we have, we have servers for communion. They're going to come up. We've got one section that's going to be here and one over here. And they'll have some bread and some juice with them. And as you uh, come forward, and I, you know, the, the ushers will be here to help dismiss. But this is a business between you and God. You come, come when you're ready. If you need to come and lay some things down at the altar first, you do that. But, but that, we need to understand that Jesus gave us this expression. And you'll be reminded of what it is and what it signifies. As you come forward, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be reminded that this is the body of Christ that is broken for you. Take of that bread. You'll dip it in the juice. You'll be reminded this is the blood of Christ that's been spilled out for you. He laid himself down as a sacrifice. And as you eat of that, just remind yourself he laid himself down as a sacrifice. Every sacrifice that we should have laid down, he laid down for us. And all the places that we haven't been obedient, he was obedient for us. And so we don't come to him today based on our works. We don't come to him today based on how well we've laid our, 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 our things down at the altar and all that sort of thing. We come to him first and foremost recognizing that he did all those things. 
and we are one with God because of his sacrifice, because of what he laid down. And then we can lay some stuff down once we recognize that. Amen? So let's pray together. Let's sing together. And let's take this meal together. Jesus, we come to you now in faith. We come to you now in trust. We come to you now recognizing that you are God and we are not. The lesson for today, as far as I'm concerned, came out of uh, Danielle's mouth when she said, you are made by God. And so God, I want to ask that I would receive that lesson. I want to ask that every heart here in this room would receive that lesson. You have been made by God. You have been made by God. You are, you are precious to him. You are precious to him. If there's anyone in the sound of my voice, whether it be now or in the future, on the, if ever it goes out on the internet or whatever, Lord Jesus, would those people hear me say, you are made by God and you are loved by God. You are precious in his sight. And so you are safe. You are safe to come and lay your precious things down at this altar. Because Jesus laid down the most precious thing there is, and that's the life of the only begotten Son, so that you might live. Jesus, help us to receive this truth truly, and then be changed by it. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Let's take this meal together, brothers and sisters. We'll be down here to pray with you as the need is.